are now listening to the Sick Invite Podcast with Kayla Herb and Ricky Grimes. Hello, my name is Kayla Herb. And I'm Ricky Grimes. And this is the Sick Invite Podcast, a storytelling show about all ailments, big or small, chronic or temporary. The Sick Invite provides an inclusive space for you to share your story. What is wrong with you? No, that was very accusatory. No, nothing. I'm, I'm excited. We're, 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 you know, putting out these three episodes and I've been, you know, listening in and it's been an enlightening experience. I mean, I, frankly, I'm, it's a little depressing, the, the stories that we've been hearing. So I can't say it's 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 been a, f- a fun time, but I do think I feel I, like I've, I'm growing in my knowledge and my understanding of the world. So I think I, I'm feeling enlightened. But all that to be said, how are you? Uh, you know, I, I agree with you. And as much as I love our show and I love everything that we learned, it's not a very uplifting show. It's not. It's not. But then again... <laughs> The world, you got to be informed, man. I mean, you know. The world is a dark place. Yeah. <laughs> and what are we talking about on the show? Oh, I'll tell you something about the show. This show right here, Kayla, this one, yeah, is brought to you by KaylaHerb.com, where knit blankets, custom quilts, and other homemade items are available for purchase and custom order. It's too late for Christmas, but it's not too late. For the new year. Mm-hmm. Do you like our show? Please tell everyone about it. Follow us, like us, and share our content at the Second Light Podcast. We also have merchandise available. Merchandise. Again, not Christmas, but this is any time of year type gift. It's good. Anytime. Hoodies are now available. All year swag. On the com. Shirts, mugs, stickers, buttons, hoodies, all you got. Did you say buttons? Yeah, buttons are there. And if you like the work that the Sick Invite podcast is doing, consider supporting us financially. We graciously accept donations of any amount. Your donation will help us cover the cost of equipment, advertising, research access, and time spent preparing for each episode. For $3 a month, for a minimum of $3 a month, or uh, a maximum if you'd like, whatever you prefer, Patreon members will receive a monthly gift, early access to episodes, and bonus content. If you would like to make a one-time donation, you could do it through our module on our website, thesickinvitepodcast.com. Please send us your story through our website. There is a form to fill out at the bottom of the page, and we will contact you with further instructions to come on the show. We want to hear from everyone. All experiences are valid. Today's episode is the second of three that are being used for my disability and diversity course. So thank you to Professor Andrew Markham and CUNY School of Professional Studies for allowing me to share this data in an accessible platform so that others have the opportunity to learn from these issues. If you haven't already, please check out our preview episode to hear more about why we chose to interview these three individuals. For her privacy, we've changed her name. We will refer to her as Betsy. Nice. Thank you in advance for listening. Ricky and I will return after the interview to discuss the topics further. Enjoy. Um, I'm 27-year-old white female. Got it? Yeah, that's great. And you are (laughs) talking to us as a patient today. So... Tell me about your chronic illness experience. Okay. Um, I might go off like all over the place, but I'll start um, the first time. I So I am still sort of in the process of getting like an official diagnosis, but um, I am believed to have a very rare autoimmune disease called Bichette's. Um, and the first time I ever experienced it, I was a freshman in college. Um woke up one day with like these ulcerations all over my body. Um, and they were super painful. Like, I don't know if you've ever had an ulcer before, like canker sore, anything. I'm sure you have, I'm sure you've had a canker sore. Yeah. (laughs) So painful. Like I had them everywhere, like all over my mouth. I also had them on on my vagina. So it was like impossible to do anything. Like couldn't pee in peace, like couldn't eat, like just super painful. Um, I was a freshman in college. I was away by myself. Like I had no idea what to do. Um, I was kind of just ignoring it. And then one day when I woke up, it was, the pain was so bad that I was like, I texted my mom and my dad and I was like, I have to go to the hospital. And like trying to explain that to them was so bizarre. Like, Oh, what's wrong? And I'm like, how do I tell them? I have like huge ulcers, like all over my vagina. Like that's so bizarre. Um, but obviously I did because at that point, like I, like I said, I had to go to the hospital. Um, and to do that, I had to get my RA. So I had to get my RA and like, not that she said anything judgmental, but she was like, okay, like another kid with an STD, like, great. We'll just send them out. So I wound up going to the hospital and I have to cut you off, not cut you off, cut myself off before I went to the hospital. It was either that day or the day before I went to my clinic at, 
at um, Marist and they looked at me and I kid you not, Kayla, like there were every NP in the building was in there, like up in my vagina, like personal space, taking pictures. They're like, I've never seen this before. I'm like, okay, great. Like, this is so reassuring. Um, But I did wind up seeing like an actual doctor there who did some sort of rapid testing on me. And they were like, this isn't coming back positive for anything with herpes, nothing. Like, I think you have a disease called Pichette's. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. Like at that point, it was random word for me. So they wound up taking a biopsy, which I didn't get results of that day. Um, And then I wound up going to the hospital. So the story with college, like doesn't end there, like, but it kind of ends there. So I, I wound up going to the hospital. My dad like raced upstate to come pick me up. Um, and he took me home from the hospital, (laughs) which was silly because I needed like some sort of medication, but I went home and then I wound up seeing my OBGYN at that point, who was just my mom's OBGYN and without any sort of testing, anything, he's like, you have herpes. And I'm like, I don't think I do at that point. I had never had sex before. Like it was so bizarre, but I was a young little girl and I was just like, okay, like I have herpes, you know, like it was that simple. And then I got the call from the clinic and they I don't know what they tested in the biopsy because I wound up learning later from my rheumatologist that you can't test for Bichette's with a, um, with a biopsy, but they were like, no, like this is a confirmed diagnosis of Bichette's. Like you should get in touch with the rheumatologist. But my mom was like, no, it's fine. Like we have the diagnosis from the OBGYN, like it's fine. And that was it. That was my freshman year of college. It healed up. I never saw it again. That was like, it was it. Um, but then in 2019, I, it happened again. And that's when I started to get like suspicious because I was like, okay, so they're telling me I have herpes. I've never seen it before, which could totally happen. Like I, it could happen that you have one flare up and never see it again. Like everyone, if, and I did so much research on herpes, I could probably do a whole presentation on it because I was trying so hard to figure out how I got it. The original OBGYN was like, you just gave it to yourself. Like the mouse, mouth ulcers, they, migrated and now you have it everywhere. And I was like, okay. So, you know, like I was doing so much research on it. Cause I was like, that just seems so suspicious to me. Like, it just doesn't seem right. So I knew everything about herpes at that point in my life. Um, when it came back in 2019, the ulcerations were worse, like bigger, worse pain that I've, that I had the first time. And I was like, this is bizarre because what I read about herpes, like your first breakout is the worst one. And the next one, they can just happen. And a little bit of pain or like just it's not supposed to be as bad as the first one so I was like this just doesn't seem right like why is it this bad again um now I'm t- 24 25 like much more comfortable with talking to my mom about this stuff and I'm like mom they're freaking back like and she's like all right just try to like keep them down like we'll do what we can blah 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 they got so bad again um I wound up going to a new OBGYN who I told her my whole history she looked at them. She's like, I'm going to be honest, like these really look like herpes ulcers, but we'll see what happens. Um, she tested them. It was like the f- tested them immediately, um, came back negative blood work came back negative. So I had multiple negative test results for herpes, but she had prescribed me herpes medications before I got the results and took the herpes medications had breakouts. Like I was in brash hives. Like, I don't know if it's because I was allergic or if my body was just reacting because it was something that I didn't need. Um, I'm not like talking badly about this OBGYN because she was great. Like she worked through everything with me. She had a whole team like on my case trying to figure out what it was, but she gave me the medication. I went home, like thinking that the medication would help, like, Oh, they'll heal up. No big deal. Um, obviously not the case. I had the reaction. And when I had the reaction, I had to go to like a 24 hour clinic. Cause it was at like 12 at night. Like it was late that I was in all these hives, like breaking out. And he's like, so it looks like you're allergic to these medications, but, um, and I was like, okay, so what do I do now? And he was like, nothing, you have herpes go home. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I went home. Um, the next day I woke up and I might've went to work. And then when I came home from work, like I couldn't do anything, couldn't pee anything. So I went to the hospital again with my mom. And at this point, my OBGYN did call and say like, you know, the herpes tests are coming back negative, but I'm working with a team to try to figure out what else it could be. They were thinking maybe it was shingles. Like they had a bunch of ideas of what it could possibly be. She's like, you know, we'll call you back when we have an idea. So um, I went to the hospital with my mom 
and like how I got treated at the hospital was really the thing that kind of like threw me off. Um, I had a nurse, my emergency room nurse was very like standoffish, like just another STD case, like we'll give her the meds and get her out. But the student that she was with was like, and you know, like not to bash students, but she was not that she was just a student, but she was like, I don't think that that's herpes. Like I've never seen this in my life. And the nurse was like, you're a student. Like, what do you know? And I was like, okay. And this, the nurse, um, I, they couldn't send me home because I had so much urine retained because I couldn't pee. So I had to stay out overnight, but the hospital nurse was very much like ignoring my pain. Like the first thing she did was like, Oh, I need a, I need a urine sample. And I was like, I can't pee. Like I can't give you a urine sample. And I know that there's other ways they could get it. Like they could straight cath me and get urine, but she was just like, no, you have to pee into this cup, this cup. Like that's how we're getting the sample. And I, I literally couldn't, it was like the worst pain I've ever felt in my entire life. Um, and then they had to like examine them and she was very like rough with, I could barely stand up. Like I'm not exaggerating the pain, like, but I, I don't even think I got pain meds at that point either. Just a side note. Um, and she was very rough, like examining them. And she's like, no, like this is absolutely herpes. Like, we'll just give you the herpes medications. We'll give you the catheter so you can pee. But then like, that's it, you're going home. And again, the student was like, I don't think this is herpes. Like, it doesn't look like it. And the same thing happened with the nurse and the student. And it was kind of like gaslighting the student almost like, what do you know? Like, it's not that big of a deal. Um, but I said, I like I told you, I, I couldn't get sent home because I was retaining so much urine. So they had to admit me. Um, so they admitted me, they ran all the tests, like every STD possible. They ran herpes testing again, and it came back negative, both cultures and blood, but they were still treating me for herpes. And I was like, it wouldn't come back negative this many times if it was herpes. Like I could understand maybe like one false, but like to have it tested over time after time again, and it'd still be negative. Um, and I had other symptoms. Like I was very, um, I had ulcers in my mouth and I don't know if you personally know the difference between like herpes and ulcerations. Herpes was more outside. Everything I had was internally and they weren't, they weren't like, they were canker sores. They, they weren't the lesion type things. So I was trying to advocate for that and they weren't, they weren't having it. And then, um, they kind of just like treated me as a pain management patient, which was great because I needed the pain management, but I was asking for different kinds of doctors to come in and talk to me. No one would come talk to me. Um, I never even saw the OBGYN there. And even if it was herpes, like I should probably see an OBGYN, you know, like I should be seeing someone more than just not to bash nurses because I'm going to be a nurse, but I should be seeing someone more than just a nurse. You know, like it was something that was really affecting my life. I was out of school for like a week. I missed my first week of nursing assistant classes. Like I was in the hospital for like three or four days. Um, but that was like the biggest thing was that I never saw someone to even discuss my case with. Like I had so many points I wanted to make. Like at that point, my mom was like ass deep in, in researching Bichette. She knew all the ways to test for it. She was asking for it and no one was giving her the time of day. They're like, she doesn't need it. She's just another herpes case. And I was like, mom, like, I promise you it's not like we would have known, you know? Um, so when I did get released from the hospital, the, the ulcers still were, weren't closed. So they were probably open for about two and a half weeks at this point. And that was another thing in my case, like they would have closed. Like it's, it's almost two and a half weeks. That's a long time to have open source. So I wound up seeing a rheumatologist and Kayla, literally, I kid you not within 10 seconds of looking at me, she's like, this isn't herpes. And I was like, I know that's why I'm here. And she was like, how many doctors told you that it was? And I was like, I like, you know, like my, my original OBGYN, all the nurses weren't listening to me. I was like, I was trying so hard to advocate that it wasn't. And she's like, no, this isn't. She's like, I've seen this a thousand times before. Like this is exactly how Bichette presents itself. But um, the issue with Bichette is that it's really hard to diagnose. Um, she ran some blood work. The tests that would show up in blood work didn't come back positive. She actually ran for every single autoimmune disease in the book. And nothing um, came back positive and she did another test, but that came back negative too. So it's really hard to diagnose. So it's now years later and I still don't have a diagnosis, but if you ask me, I'm, I'm diagnosed by myself, even though I'm not a doctor to do that, but um, I basically yeah, I found that with other people with autoimmune diseases, including yeah. myself, 
people we've interviewed, uh, those kind of tests, they have a lot of false, like an enormous amount of false negatives. Like if you get not a lot of false positives, but a negative doesn't, it's not definitive at all. Um, I mean, again, I'm not a doctor either, but um, right. (laughs) And like, I had this situation with my rheumatologist who said, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Crohn's. I don't have any markers. My, um, what's the inflammatory marker for the, for whatever the protein inflammatory marker is that's never elevated for me, even if right. I have a scan that shows I have inflammation. Um, but he's like, all right, I think you have it. So let's treat you for it and see how you respond. Is that kind of right. how your rheumatologist approached you? Absolutely. Yeah. And the interesting part with her was like, she sat down and explained to me like every single system in my body that it can be affecting and every single thing that she hit were things that I've been experiencing my entire life but I just never put like connected to connected the dots you know like it affects your eyes it affects I have awful migraines it affects your migraines could give you some arthritis in your hands I can't like do things for too long you know like it's she's everything that she sat down and like talked to me about I was like it makes absolute perfect sense like I experienced every single one of those but the thing and I'm pretty sure I talked to you about this when we got coffee a long time ago was that it affects your, your like gut and your GI. And I've been having stomach issues my entire life, but just kind of look past them. Cause I was like, oh, it's no big deal. Like it's another stomach ache. Oh, I can't eat this. I won't eat it. You know? Um, but I should have said this before, but when I was in the hospital, I, I was also experienced, I had a stomach ulcer. So that was something else that was hitting, like falling in with the system of Bichette's, but it was still being looked past. And they're like, no, it could just be a stress ulcer. Like you're going through a lot, which it absolutely could have been like, I'm not going to deny that, but it was just the fact that I was experiencing so many things that didn't correlate with the diagnosis that they were giving me. And in the moment, like it kind of just felt like they said, okay, like, oh, it's herpes because that's easy. Like, I don't want to like downgrade herpes, but like, it's an easy diagnosis. Like you're a 27, 25 year old female, like you, you have herpes and it's like, okay, it's easy to say and it's easy to diagnose, but it just didn't sit right with me because I knew it wasn't true. Um, but yeah, I just went on a huge tangent. <laughs> so that was great. You and <laughs> just re-looking at the questions, like, okay, she covered a lot of these, <laughs> <laughs> which is crazy because I didn't even look at them because I didn't have a second to look at them before today, before this. <laughs> I mean, I it, knowing most of the people who I'm sending this to, having a general idea of their stories, I know that if I just say, go ahead and tell me it, you'll hit all of those marks. You'll hit everything. Yeah. So, important to the story. Um, but it sounds so I, I felt in my experience, uh, you know, female with pelvic pain, it's always, oh, well, you must be pregnant. Yeah. Uh, maybe you have an ectopic pregnancy. Those are always the top things that they check for. And I, I remember there was a time where uh, my husband, my boyfriend at the time, he was away at school. I was like, I promise you I'm not pregnant. Like <laughs> there's zero chance. And that they will was- still always, always, always do that. Like that was a thing for me. Yeah. Sorry. But like they're telling me freshman year of college, like you have a sexually transmitted disease. And I'm like, how, tell me how, give me the scientific proof of how this could happen. Like it's not possible. Like, and I didn't believe that I gave it to myself. Like I was like, Keila, I tell you, I was up till like four o'clock in the morning because, and I know now like herpes is herpes. Like you have it, you have it. It's not going to end your life. It's not going to ruin your relationships. Like I absolutely have no stigma towards herpes. But when I first heard that as a freshman in college, I was like, oh my God, like, what does that mean? So like, I tell you, I was up till four o'clock in the morning, research about it. Like I was up till four o'clock in the morning and there is no scientific evidence that you're giving it to yourself. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like that if I could, and I hate to shame that OBGYN because my mom is obsessed with him, like birth all of us. But I was like, I will burn him to the ground. Like he did not respect me and listen to me. And I I stopped, obviously stopped going to him and I never looked back. And even when I was asking him for my medical records to send them to my new OBGYN, he gave me such a hard time. And I was like, I don't even need them. It's fine. Just, just keep them. It's fine. I'm starting over. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because you highlight a really important issue of surrounding shame and that people don't want to come forward with these kind of stories um, because of the discrimination they'd feel. So if you did have herpes, how shameful they make you feel for it. Yes. Like yeah. herpes, when you're, you know, in excruciating pain over it, you could be passing it on to other people. Who did you get it from? It's a big right. issue. And they should be taking it seriously, but 
they see college student and they go, oh, it's just an STD. Exactly. But you can die from STDs. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, like. Do you feel like the discrimination on, would you call it discrimination? How you were feeling just as, or prejudgment they made about you? I don't know if like discrimination is the right word, but I definitely just felt like I was being judged as like, okay, it's another college student with an STD. Like it is what it is. We're moving on to the next patient. Like, does that make sense? And especially, Uh, um, especially when I got sick at college, like I just didn't feel the support from like my RA. When I told her what was wrong, she was like, okay. And like rolled her eyes and I'm like, okay, but this is serious. Like I, I can't pee. I can't eat. Like we're going on days now. Like I, this is, even if it is herpes, like acknowledge it. That's it's affecting me negatively. Like, um, I can definitely say that I felt that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that from what I understand too, like herpes is not just a sexually transmitted disease. You can get it in a number of ways. Um, and then it affects your body from different, I mean, you would know now you're an expert now. <laughs> I think just the stigma of it, they're like, oh, well, you got this because you're a promiscuous woman. How dare you have premarital sex? Of course you got herpes. Exactly that. Like exactly that. They're like, girl. And I vividly remember someone saying, I don't remember if it was one of my nurses. It must've been because I never saw anyone else, but I, there was one nurse who was really, really respectful to me once I got admitted. And like, she had so much dignity and respected me and like was there. Like she was just there to help and listen. And I remember her like vividly saying, even when, cause they had to do their assessments and look at everything. I remember her so vividly saying like, I'm not an expert expert, but I do not think that this is herpes. She's like, and even if it is, you need better attention because you shouldn't be having outbreaks like this. And I, I don't remember her name, but I remember her work like to the T, but there was also a nurse who was just like, Oh, girls, your age get this all the time. And like, you know, like that's it. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't make you, um, it doesn't no. make <laughs> lesions go away. No. <laughs> so after these experiences, and maybe you could probably speak to this as a student too. Um, a lot of the issues and why I'm interviewing other medical professionals right now too, is that this is an issue within hospitals too. And mm-hmm. the big issue on bedside manner on being rushed through on the protocol that people have and I don't necessarily blame the individuals more than I blame a faulty system that we have. Mm-hmm. In so what are approaches that you wish they would have taken or more things that they knew about you before they speak to you or treat you in such a manner? Um, I can, on, like in the, ho- in the emergency room, I feel like no, no part of my past was like, they didn't, they didn't ask about it. They weren't interested about my past. And I felt like that was a big part of it because this wasn't the first time it happened. Like this has happened before. Like they weren't interested in any of that. And and I forgot to tell you, (laughs) um, even though I had the reaction to the herpes medication, the first time they put me on herpes medication again in the hospital, it was a different brand, but they, I felt as if they were falsely medicating me and you don't need an antiviral if you don't need an antiviral, like not that it's an antibiotic and it's going to do all this to your body and like make you resistant to bacteria. But like, why are you medicating me if I don't need this medication? But anyway, I wish they would have known more about my past or like taken the time to listen to it, if that makes sense. Um, and also just like understand that I'm a person, like know like things that I, I don't know, just talk to me before you like see me as a person before you see me as a patient. Does that make sense? And I, like, I, I always try to say that in the hospital too. Um, yeah, it's just see me as a person before you see me as a patient. Like, obviously you have to focus on my symptoms, but like there's more to your illness than just what's physically presenting itself. And like, it's a lot of emotional stuff too. Like the whole, that was embarrassing even at 25 years old, like just have some dignity, have some respect. Like, and I don't think I, I got it from that one nurse, but otherwise it was just not none of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Another nurse that I had talked to, I was asking, you know, how do you read a patient when they're talking about something that maybe you can't visually see? So for you, you did have a visual proof that something was wrong. Um, but just prior to examination, there are other keys to show that you're in distress. Yeah. Um, it whether it's emotionally, you're you know, you're upset, you're nervous, you're in pain. Um, so you would you agree that you think that they should be reading those cues and taking that into account while when approaching. Absolutely. Well, and that yeah, probably absolutely. 
influenced your experience there a little bit more. Yeah. I also think that's important. Like even just outside of me, there's so many cultures that don't approach things the same way maybe you and I do. And nonverbal communication can be so much louder than verbal communication. And I think that it's so overlooked a lot of the time. Um, I just, yeah, I, I, I could go off about the hospital system for hours, but I was trying to be the patient. <laughs> um, we still have plenty of time here. Um, and I, I think it probably interconnects. So yeah. feel free to, if you want to go off, go off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, it, 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 it happens all the time. Or like, I think one of my biggest pet peeves, and I actually just brought this up in school the other day. Um, when we have Spanish speaking only patients, like I, this might even not be related at all, but I, I feel that, I mean, it's, it's obvious that they're not getting the same level of care. Like I'll sit down with a good doctor and be told my medication list A to Z side effects, what time to take it. Like, this is what you should be expecting this. If you don't, exp- if this doesn't happen, call me, you know, whatever. I see all the time. And again, like it's not to shame the people, but more so the system because the people don't have the time to take for this, but there's a Spanish speaking patient and they do their best broken English to describe what the medication is, but never get the full detail list about, you know, like take this at this time. These are the side effects, this, this, this. I see it all the time with discharge. Like you have any questions? No. Okay. Bye. Like not even giving them the second to answer. And the part that frustrates me so much is I know every hospital system has this, but we have translator phones and they're just like, nah, it's fine. I don't need it. They'll understand. It's like, will they? Because if someone was telling you your medication regimen in Spanish, you probably wouldn't understand it. But that's one of my, my problems with the hospital. <laughs> um, no, a really big thing. So this course that I'm yeah. taking disability and diversity, and that's a major issue that our system is catered towards white men who speak English who are not disabled and who are cisgender it's yeah that's exactly it yeah like it it's and you see it all the time if there's like a call bell going off for the 45 year old male who's there for chest pain as opposed to like the 45 year old Spanish man who just feels a little nauseous like and I don't want to like obviously chest pain is like a serious symptom but like they're gonna go to him first like it's just it's no matter what, like, that's what it's, it's going to happen. They're going to go to him, even if he's complaining about a cut on his finger, like it just, it is what it is. And it's not, it is what it is. Cause it shouldn't be like that, but there's work that needs to be done. Um, and I, I, yeah, I see it all the time. Like they just, I, I don't know what he's going to I don't know what he's saying. So why should I go in there and help try something? Like, I don't know. And then I also see the Spanish speaking healthcare workers get completely overworked because they're so abused, like come translate for me. Like that's not their job. That's what you have a translator phone for, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I see it every day, all the time. Do you um, find that they address this in your education? I'm so happy you brought that up because they absolutely do not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely do not. I, I want to say two things about education like about me and my situation, I'm in my third semester of nursing school about to start my fourth. I have not talked about STDs or STIs once and have never talked about autoimmune diseases. And they, we talked about the difference of Crohn's and um, colitis for half half of half of a lecture. Like I'm not even kidding you, like five minutes of a chart of the differences. And you and I both know that it's a lot more than just words on a chart. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't speak for medical school, obviously. I will tell a reassuring story. I was on vacation over the summer with my friend and her fr- all of her friends are in med school. And when I told them what Bichette's was, one of them knew everything about it. So they are learning about it in med school, but they're not nursing school and no shame to doctors, but nurses are completely the eye and ears of people in the emergency room. Like if they're presenting with autoimmune disease, like characters, and you don't know about autoimmune, autoimmune diseases, how are you going to treat them properly? You're just going to jump to a conclusion that it's something that you've learned. So that was the first thing I want to say about education. Um, shit, I forgot the second, <laughs> but in, reg- <laughs> in regards to um, teaching like diversity, that also is not taught at all. And I'm pretty sure it would, it was you who posted on Instagram the other day about like if American sign language was taught from, was that you? Yeah. Yes. Um, 
I say that all the time in nursing school. If we were just taught even like the bare minimum words, like medical terminology in Spanish, it could make or break an entire interaction. It could be the difference of night and day. Um, and I'm not taught anything. And I am about to start my fourth semester and I'm, I have the option to take some electives next semester. And I was appalled to see not one of them was about like, um, Spanish medical terms because we, we live in New York. Like the diversity is insane at my hospital. I see probably more Spanish speaking patients than I do English. And I feel awful. Cause I'm like, I'll use a translator phone. I'll do the best that I can, but it's, I still, it's even using a translator phone. Like it's not the same interaction that you or I would get. You're not talking to the person you're talking to the phone, you know, like it's just different. Um, but yeah, absolutely appalled to see that there wasn't a single offering. Um, and there, there was an offering for ASL, but it's like, you know, there was one offering, so there was an offering for ASL, but nothing for Spanish. Wow. Yeah. That's, I know I was thinking that too, my, my sister, when she was in elementary school, she was in a dual language program where I believe there were two teachers and one would talk only in English in the class and the other one would talk only in Spanish in the class because she was in Bayshore. So there was yeah. a lot of um, Spanish speaking families there who only spoke Spanish at home. So right. it was great for all the kids and she's not fluent now, but enough that like when we went on vacation to Costa Rica a couple of years ago, like she was able to like read the signs for us and get us where yeah. we had to go. So things like that. And then sign language too. I'm like, what if I have a kid one day that's deaf? I'm not going to know where it's I got to teach myself this. so hard. And it's, you would think that if you're going to be in a job where you're serving the public, you're a public servant, you should be able to speak to the public and yep. probably half of our nation speaks Spanish yeah um, and then probably less than that only Spanish but it's it is an issue and yeah. uh, I'm sad to see it's not <laughs> being yeah. addressed in your school it's so sad but Even, I also wanted to ask oh go ahead no I was just going to tell a little story like last night um one of my patients was deaf and all they had in her room was the sign that says patient is deaf like no dry erase board she's not she's very intelligent she's complete she knows she's intelligent you know like she's very capable to write down back and forth yeah um all it said was patient is deaf I didn't even get it no one told me in report like I if that sign fell god forbid I would have had no no idea I would have thought this patient was now unresponsive and you know like whatever but um she called for assistance and I went in there and I it's COVID I whatever but I lowered my mask because I I, my best friend growing up is deaf and I give her so much credit for where I am with the deaf community because it really exposed me so much um just pulled my mask down so she could read my freaking lips and like yes it's COVID so you know I stepped back a little bit but she was like you're the first person to do that all day and I got in there at 10 o'clock at night like (laughs) are you kidding no one how are people medicating her like they're just talking over their mask and like passing her these meds and you know like are they even talking to her at all I did the simplest things and at the end of our interaction what I helped her with whatever she needed to be helped with she's like if it wasn't for the virus I'd hug you right now like that breaks my heart that I'm the first person all day to give her any type of a human interaction like it whatever (laughs) it's just step back and think how can I communicate with this person doesn't require that much thought to no she's gonna need to see my mouth she read my lips perfectly. We had a conversation. Like yeah. she's you're and okay. Cause this goes like, it's just so annoying. It's just, it's annoying, but yeah. Yeah. Communication. And, and then you, you brought up nonverbal before too. Um, communication is a big issue. And I didn't put any of these questions in the document, but for people who are nonverbal or for um, people who can speak, but it's difficult to understand them. It's, so often assumed like oh well they just can't speak or oh they're stupid so yeah. they'll you know talk to them like babies or they'll talk to somebody else in the room when you could be talking to the patient themselves patient yeah now do you have in your program so far or coming up are there any um courses on communication or interaction with people with disabilities like that so actually this semester, there's there's no specific course for it, but in our pediatric simulation this, this semester, um, we were given a simulation 
this is going to completely expose my school if anyone listens, because we're probably the only school to do this, but um, <laughs> we were given a simulation to um, where we pretended we were at a day camp, like it was a sleepaway camp and a sleepaway camp for people with disabilities. Um, and it was one of my favorite simulations. Like I wasn't necessarily like jumping in and doing all these hands-on skills and practicing IVs or giving injections, but one of my favorite simulations, because I mean, I'm not sure if you know my history, but I worked with adults with autism for three years. And one of my biggest pet peeves in the hospital is how um, people with autism are taken care of. Um, but in the simulation, it was a day camp, uh, sleepaway camp for people with disabilities. And we had a cerebral palsy patient, um, an autistic pa a patient with autism. Sorry, that's not the right way to say it, but a patient with autism um, and something, I forgot what the other two were. Um, but they all had disabilities and we had to like navigate on how to include them in the, the camp activities, which it was three hours of absolutely making sure that everyone would fully understood what these um, disabilities were, um, how to properly include them, like how to interact with parents of kids with a disability. Um, yeah, so that's the one thing that my school has done for me, but otherwise there's no like class or anything but I will give my school a lot of credit for that simulation because I don't think it's done in a lot of places. And it was really refreshing to see as someone who's worked in that, that in like with that population for so long. Um, yeah. That's great. I like that. And then it's, yeah. it's interesting because even if you did have all this information, a lot of the etiquette surrounding disability or the information we have about it changes over the years. So if you talk to a nurse who graduated even 10 years ago, they might have different feelings on what's appropriate to discuss with disability as to somebody who's learning now. Yeah. So just mentioned people first language. That's actually a huge topic right now in the autism community where a lot of um, people will say, actually, I don't want to be called a person with autism. I'm just autistic. People call me autistic. Where Interesting. Some other people, they, you know, they prefer both. And it's really yeah. where like it was pushed for so long to say, you know, person with disability, a lot of disabled people are like, nah, it's fine. Just call yeah. me disabled uh, to just make it a, a uh, not a bad word. Same thing with the word crippled. There's a new movement of reclaiming that word, um, right. making it not a bad thing anymore. So it's, it's not like, it's not a bad thing. We just, societies, we suck. We really do. Yeah. And just <laughs> to keep up with language alone is, you know, it's a full-time job and it's, yeah. um, so I think that in a perfect world, medical professionals would have, you know, constant exposure to disability news and the disability community. And then just listening to what people want to be called, mm -hmm. what how they want to be treated, but it's hard when you're, so overworked and it's nothing that's mandated and it's you know people that you're not always surrounded yeah. with so even if your school was perfect yeah. it might not be relevant again further in your career absolutely mm -hmm. yeah so absolutely are, are you in how I don't I'm not sure how long nursing school goes so I know that you've worked in hospitals but do you find that like the older crowd still operates on outdated terms yeah. and policies and procedures is it hard yeah. to teach an old dog a new trick it is very hard and I think it's just going to get more I, I don't want to it's not going to get harder but it's going to be very interesting in the next few years when Gen Z like really starts they're, they're graduating college they're going to be the next generation of nurses and the old generation they're still here they probably have five or something years until they can retire and I think that's when we're going to see hopefully the biggest change like I don't want to say the biggest clash there's definitely going to be a lot of clash because it's like two polar opposite ends um I really have high hopes for Gen Z coming into the medical field because I think that like even like I see all over TikTok and I'm just like go Gen Z but like the like the people who just graduated nursing school and they're brand new nurses like calling out doctors for being disrespectful and they're just like what makes you think you can talk to me like that and it's like this is what we need like so mm -hmm. I think Gen Z is going to be really great for the healthcare community. I'm sure there's going to be so many people that disagree with me on that, but I think the generation like right below us and even, even so, like some of our generation are so much more up to date with like 
I don't want to say real issues, but like a lot of the issues that need attention to where for years they've just been like, okay, it's not that big of a deal. We're just going to keep going. But it's like, no, 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 let's stop, go back, redo this and see where we end up. I don't even know if I answered your question, but there's a lot of clash and it's very hard for to to work with some of, I don't want to say the outdated nurses, but um, it could get difficult. Mm-hmm. It could definitely get difficult. Oh, I agree with you. I think that Gen Z is way more just politically involved than Brie ever were because they don't know a post 9-11 uh, pre 9-11 world you know so right. it's they were born into caring about these this, issues. yeah so I mean yeah. I I feel the same thing especially with TikTok I'm like oh these kids are I, I'm <laughs> loving I'm like proud of them I'm like oh <laughs> I'm, I'm a proud mom <laughs> and then same thing with people our own age seeing what their focus is on and the changes that they're trying to make in the yeah. paths that they're going on where Oh, it was always frowned upon to kind of stir the pot. Now you need right. to to bring about that change. So yeah, um, I know you mentioned Gen Z calling people out, but are you a comfortable individual um, reporting <laughs> issues or calling out? <laughs> um, honestly, yes. I actually, this is a great example. Um, I was at work the other day, and we had a very, very heavy patient, like very heavy. Um, and his nurse was a very outdated nurse um, who really is just quite frankly rude all the time. But she's just really, she's, she's I don't want to say she's outdated, but she's outdated. She's just not politically correct. She doesn't approach people, no, no bedside matter, like just honestly awful to work with. Um, and this patient had to be moved from the bed that he was in to a bigger bed, which was so appropriate because him and I are not fitting in the same bed. I can sleep in the bed that he was in and have literally wiggle room to do whatever I please. He was scrunched up in this bed, probably getting pressure ulcers from being, you know, he didn't fit. He needed to be moved. It was that simple. She was so annoyed that we had to move him. Like it was going to ruin her entire day. We got so much help to move him. Um, And it wasn't easy, but you know, we did it. We had all the help that we needed and we moved him and he was so thankful to be moved. But when we moved him, which is, and this is a very common thing to happen when you move a patient from bed to bed, um, everything goes with you. So you're pulling them over and all the sheets are getting pulled too. the sheet, the chuck, the pillows, everything comes over with you. So he was uncomfortable because the sheets were scrunched up underneath him. And it's also not good for his skin at all. Like, but they're scrunched up underneath him. And he was like, I'm really so sorry to say this. He's, and I hate to ask. So like, you know, already that he was embarrassed. Like he didn't want to ask, but he, he, but he's like, the sheets are scrunched up underneath me and it's really uncomfortable. And I'm like, okay, so we'll move you. Like, it's fine. Like, we'll, we'll, it's not going to be easy. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but you know, we'll roll you over. And obviously I didn't say that out loud, but I'm thinking it to myself. We'll roll you over, like get everything out from underneath you as I said, we'll move you, like we'll turn you and roll you. The nurse in front of him goes, but you don't understand what it takes to turn him. And I was like, you're fucking kidding me. In front of the patient, I've never been so mad in my entire life. I looked at her, I'm not gonna say her name, but I was like, how dare you? He's still a person. And I I walked out because I was mortified. Like, how could she say that? Like, he was embarrassed to ask to begin with. The poor thing, like, you don't, he, he's not, he knows he's overweight. He's not sitting here like, Hey, I'm two pounds. Like turn me that he, you don't need to tell him something that he already knows. So I walked right up to my manager and I was like, it was so inappropriate and she cannot act like that. And I had no problem doing it because the patient, no, I'm sorry. You just, you can't do that. It's not right. And it's not fair. And like I said before, you have to see them as a person, like you just hurt his feelings and you know that. Like, mm-hmm. how dare you? So yeah, I have no problem reporting people because I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't Love stand it. for it. Love the energy. Yeah. yeah that's, that's another issue that I wanted to include in my diversity is just the, I mean, I, th- I think that our generation and just society in general is getting better at this, but huge fat phobic um, rhetoric thing. And especially in medical communities they see somebody who's fat and they'll be coming in like they'll be like oh I cut my leg they'll be like oh well it's because you're fat and it's that's <laughs> oh. not it at all <laughs> like no that's not it <laughs> bad and like, yeah, it prevents oh. a lot of people from getting the proper attention and you know he could I agree 
you know, been nervous to ask and then get a bed sore and then that can infect and then he die. And then it's because it, he's nervous to ask. Exactly. It, 100% exactly. And exactly. Like, he was nervous to ask from the beginning. And this is so not healthcare related, but talking about fat phobia, um, I don't know if you saw, I don't remember what news outlet it was or whatnot. They posted Adele, obviously now very, very thin. They posted a picture of her and it goes, this got me so mad on the train today. It goes, <laughs> I guess she just did a concert with Oprah. She did something. Um, Adele's concert with Oprah, Oprah, Oprah proves that she didn't lose her singing with her weight. Where's the correlation? Why did we even need to? Yeah, she, she lost weight. Great. Congratulations. We're very proud of her, but she would have never lost her singing voice. Like that's not correlated. <laughs> Why did you feel the need to make that a headline? Oh my God. But yeah, we're getting better. <laughs> we're getting better because people can call out people like that now. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And um, Back duration that it makes no sense. <laughs> I went to look for the post later and it was deleted. And I was like, good. They probably felt like idiots and they were called out and it got deleted and that's it. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. An, the, the fat phobia is awful. And in hospitals, it, it really is. I'll see people not want to change someone because they're heavier or harder to turn. It's like, you have a whole support team right here. Just ask for help. They don't get any less of care just because they're heavier than you or I are like, stop. I think a lot of this, um, the issues, and we see this a lot with other issues in society is that, you know, people are not either exposed to these issues. They're stuck in their small town with their circle um, but also that they're never called out on anything. It's always kind of like a rude thing to do. And I found even just with like racial issues, like Linda Hurst was a very racist town, but it, like a lot of people, including myself, went to college, learned about other humans, came back and then realized how problematic their upbringing was and such. Yeah. And I, I think the medical community has not caught up with that. I agree. Um, looking at your surroundings, taking the criticism and not just like, oh, I earned my doctorate. I can do whatever I want now. Yeah, I completely agree. It's a lot of exposure and just like being receptive to new information. And yeah. I don't understand what's so hard about that yet. <laughs> yep. I, I completely agree. It's, it's not hard. It's just, it's not, it's not what everyone's used to. So it, in their eyes, it's hard and it's, it's really not. It takes all of 10 minutes to learn about something new mm -hmm. practice it you know like I don't know yeah it's it's certainly as I'm interviewing more people I've interviewed plenty and plenty of patients but now that I'm shifting into asking more of the medical professionals like how do we change this what can we do going forward because again it's not one person's fault it's it's not things that have to change and how, how did we get this bad yeah so I'm yeah. really appreciative of you talking about both sides here today. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get a lot of those. So thank you. Um, yeah, I'm happy before we to wrap it up, are there any other examples of anything that you wanted to talk about today that we didn't get to? Um, thinking on the spot, I'm probably not going to be able to do it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm honestly sure. I Okay, I, I'll bring this up just because we talked about... Um, autism before and how I said I, I hate the way that it's portrayed and not even portrayed but taken care of in, in hospitals um I'll oftentimes see patients come in that have autism and they're just immediately looked at like oh they might get aggressive like just put them on a one-to-one -one. the one-to-one -one can take care of it whatever I have two examples one time we had a patient who had autism um he was on a one-to-one but I was still trying to do my job, whatever. Um, and I just simply went in to feed the patient and I'll never forget. The nurse was like, be careful. They have autism. And I'm like, I'm feeding them. Yeah. What is they I'm feeding them dinner. Like, it's not that serious. Like, what do you mean? They don't eat because they have autism. Even if they have gotten aggressive in the past, like you don't hold that against someone, especially if they have an intellectual disability. Like, are you kidding me? So that was one time. And I was really pissed off about that. The second time I was on a one-to-one -one in the emergency room um, with a kid who had autism um, and he was verbal, not talking like you and I, like he's not going to sit there and have a full conversation with you, but could absolutely make his needs met. And he also had an iPad. So you, there was no 
barriers with with this individual at all. Um, he started to get upset and he got very aggressive. Um, so they called the code gray on him and I was with him all day. Like I built a small rapport with him. Like I was able to communicate with him. Cause like I said, it, it wasn't rocket science. You just have to put in the work. Um, they called a code gray on him and I'm not familiar if you, if you're familiar with the word code gray, but basically just anytime, um, a patient gets aggressive, verbally abusive, like they, um, call security and, you know, they, they let security kind of handle it with nurse administration and the nurses, like just more of a, a group effort than it is um, just on the nurse, God forbid, it does escalate. Um, so they called the code on him. And by the time the code was called, he was kind of like running around the emergency room. Um, and to get him to stop running around, they just kind of like tackled him. And there was like 10 security guards, like holding this patient up, like it, like, like they were holding a casket to like not sound morbid but they're carrying this patient into oh my back to his room like it like it's a casket um they put him on his bed and they're still like restraining him and like to be fair like he's still being a- aggressive and aggressive to himself too so like they are trying to protect the, the child um but I was like can we just and I, I went to get closer to him to like try to communicate to see what was upsetting him because I'm sure there's a reason for it. So <laughs> this is gonna get me upset, but as I'm getting closer to the, the patient, they're like, back up, like, I don't want you to get hurt. And I'm like, just take a second to see if he could tell us what the issue is. And like, I never really yell at people at the hospital, but at this point it was, it was so hard to see, like the patient was very visibly, obviously in distress. Like he was very, very, like just, it was too much. And I'm sure you're very familiar with some of the symptoms that people with autism feel or autistic people feel. Um, overstimulation is huge. Like it was just, it was too much. So I was, I said his name, whatever. And I'm like, what's the matter? And at this point I'm like, get I'm like closer to him and I'm getting yelled at from security, like back up, back up. And all I said was, what's the matter? And this kid goes, I want the scary monsters to get off of me. Oh and so, like, <laughs> security I was like get off of him security let up and he stopped like (laughs) maybe that's obviously not what set him off in the beginning because they weren't there but whatever he was upset about originally went away and the only issue he was having was that he was this grown child basically an adult I can't remember his age but he wasn't like six like he's just being restrained and just it's scary like get off of him like Mm -hmm. I don't know yeah a lot any experience working with people with intellectual disabilities, but we do read a lot about it in class. And, you know, we've read about, because autism is such a huge spectrum, just just the things that we kind of grew up on, like um, ABA therapy and restraining and how harmful it is to these individuals, because it's, you're not allowing them to express themselves in the way that their brain and their body needs them to. Yeah it only gets harder when these boys grow up into men and you can't restrain this grown man anymore and yeah. you get labeled as violent or aggressive and mm-hmm. instead of working on the tools to communicate with them and get to learn with them they just learn of how do we not get anybody else or themselves hurt and that's not always I mean sometimes you have to I, I whatever right. happens yeah. I work with them but there's not enough time dedicated to these individuals to find out like you did what is wrong how can they make feel better yeah like what if something what if they were hurt what if something was wrong and all this time they were you know restraining making it worse right like what if he was acting out because his wrist hurt now all of a sudden they're applying five grown men are applying pressure on his wrist like that's not you know like whatever but even a panic attack or something you know it's right scary it is and as soon as I let up, he was fine. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I was so thankful that I was there because I'm lucky enough to have the experience. And if I wasn't, I, who knows how long the code would have went on for. It could have gotten so much worse. You know, I don't know, but I, yeah, I thank my old job a lot for that because they really, they taught me so much. They, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you have like the perfect cocktail of experience. You're going to be <laughs> best nurse you have Thanks. the personal experience you have the adverse experience of things, <laughs> things um and then you've worked 
with a pretty diverse group of individuals at this yeah. point that you've interacted with in your life. So I think you're a perfect example of how exposure to different types of disabilities and illnesses yeah. and situations really does help make you a better medical professional. So please yeah, finish nursing school and then <laughs> thanks. And I will go there my mom's sick. I will let you know. <laughs> um, but. but you really you touched upon so many issues that I wanted to do more research on. And you're the only the second person I've interviewed so far for this particular batch of um, interviews that I'm doing, but I already see a lot of correlation in good you had to say and without even me really bringing up issues of diversity you both did so it's that's clear good that I mean it's not good but <laughs> no but it, it's it, clear it, that we have an issue yeah and, um a problem that you both as professionals and you as a patient who can are able to identify and be like this is bad yeah <laughs> so I I don't have any intentions of fixing it overnight but I'm happy that we can highlight the issue with sharing these stories and get, gathering the qualitative data. So I'm really thankful that you were yeah. available tonight to participate. Um, of course, I'm so happy. <laughs> so thank you again to Betsy for talking to us about all of these perspectives you, that she offered today. Did you pick the names or did they pick the names? They, I picked the names. I just went A, B, C. Oh, well, that makes sense. <laughs> Anne and Betsy, and then we got... But, the person with a C name for the next. But episode. you could have said Beth. You went with something a little more, yeah, a little more interesting. But that that was a that was a great conversation. You did a great job. Yeah, Both she. Um, you know, oh, unfortunately, but fortunately, I think that her adverse medical experiences are going to make her an excellent nurse because she got a real nice quick course in how not to treat patients. Sure. And she experienced it herself. And not that I think that every <laughs> medical professional should go through that, but it certainly does um, make you a little bit more empathetic going forward it's as a, a it's professional. A, it's, a, it's a perspective, absolutely. And, you know, they they brought up a lot of topics on things that are stigmatized or things that there are, you know, assumptions about like STDs and uh, ageism like they see you know a young college girl with uh, lesions on her genitals and go oh it's got to be herpes Mm -hmm. (laughs) young girl in college what else is she doing sure so it's unfortunate Um, but I think the most important thing that I took away from this episode and we talked about it last week too was the issues on communicating Mm -hmm. she made great points about language barriers, communicating with deaf individuals through the pandemic, especially with the masks covering, and communicating with autistic individuals. There's a lot of ways to communicate even when there are barriers, but you know, nurses are not given the time needed to take the extra few minutes that it takes to do so. Right. And we talked about that a lot in school too. Um, people who are verbal, but you know, maybe they might be hard to understand. There's a real lack of patience when it comes to talking to these people and trying to figure it out. And an example that I've used in the past is like, if a mom can hear her, their mumbling toddler and it sounds like gobbledygook to us, but they could be like, Oh no, they said they wanted a sandwich in their side of goldfish. If you can figure out your child and what they're saying, you can figure out what a patient is trying to communicate with you. You know what I mean? No, <laughs> you've never had that with a parent. You're saying, <laughs> you're saying that a, a, uh, a, a doctor should be given the opportunity because they, they, they have a rapport with a patient. Is that what you're saying? I think medical professionals, they need more time in like these kind of situations. So Cause you're it's saying, not back and so forth what, so like what, us. Oh, okay. So what you're saying is that if an individual, even though they're, let's say a patient is not clear on their communication, mm-hmm. if a person has the opportunity to develop a rapport, they still should be able to communicate effectively with yes, them. Yes. And they shouldn't be written off as quickly as they often are with an inability to communicate mm-hmm. right and so what and what about i know you have some info here about you know nonverbal yeah. communication we got a, we're going to bring up that and you know assumptions and there's a lot of assumptions with autism you know, that they either can't speak or that autism is dangerous or she also brought up oh you're fat then that's the cause of all of your problems you go to college then you are abusing alcohol or mm-hmm. you have stds sure But exposure to different forms of illnesses and disabilities in your career, I think, will be helpful. And that's I'm really excited for Betsy's career from her experience that she has in her school, from her personal experience and her prior work experience before jumping in to the field as a nurse. Absolutely.
But to cite some sources to prove that it's not just me talking here, <laughs> there are some scholarly articles about these issues. Julia Sarah Bembenishti and Jordan R. Hanick published an article titled Nonverbal Communication to Restore Patient-Provider Trust. And they shared, communication psychologists often rely on a 55-38-7 formula, meaning 55% body language, 38% voice tone, and 7% of the actual words spoken. They said, this is not just speaking to the patient, it's also listening to them and giving them proper attention. They state, in nursing, posture is the most important in performing active listening. However, more than medical information is transmitted when a patient or family member speaks to a nurse. Often, the act of being heard can be spirit healing for patients and family members. Thus, the healthcare practitioner as a listener must deliberately commit to the act of listening. Using this body language creates a safe environment for the patient to speak freely, which gives practitioners insight into the patient's internal life and the patient an opportunity to begin emotional healing. So Mm. it establishes trust between each party. Right. And, you know, Betsy brings up a good example with her patient who was deaf just by her taking her mask down just for a minute so that they can talk and communicate properly created a huge sense of trust between both of them mm-hmm. much more than the patient received with prior care right. and you and i we've been in the hospital together and the anxiety of not knowing what's going on you being sick you not feeling well and feeling like nobody is paying attention to you that's very isolating certainly yeah so it's it's more than just hearing what they have to say it's also your duty and your bedside manner mm-hmm. to do it so we had talked about presumptions too, and that's another issue that there's a whole lot of data surrounding, but making presumptions about individuals can be deadly. So the Journal of Advanced Nursing issued an article titled Heterosexual Assumptions in Nonverbal and Verbal Communication in Nursing by Gerd Rondal, Sunye Inala, and Marianne Carlson. They found that heteronormativity was communicated in waiting rooms, in patient documents, and when registering for admission. And nursing staff sometimes showed perplexity when an informant deviated from its heteronormative assumption. Informants had often met nursing staff who showed fear of behaving incorrectly, which could lead to a sense of insecurity, thereby impeding further, further communication. As partners of gay patients, informants felt that they had to deal with heterosexual assumptions more than they did when they were patients, and the consequences were feelings of not being accepted as a true relative of exclusion and neglect. Almost all patients offered recommendations about how nursing staff could facilitate communication. Mm. So an example here would be, you know, a woman coming in with pelvic pain, and they, one, assume that she has a uterus, but two, assume that she's pregnant despite it maybe not even being possible given their sexual activity. Right, 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 right. So they concluded that heterosexual norms communicated unconsciously by nursing nursing staff contribute to ambivalent attitudes and feelings of insecurity that prevent communication and easily lead to misconceptions. Educational and management interventions, as well as increased communication, could make gay people more visible and thereby encourage openness and awareness by hospital staff of the norms that they communicate through their language and behavior. Got it. I mean, I guess it, it's understandable that, you know, the, the the generalities, you know, if you're doing diagnosis work, especially in an emergency situation, you want to try and start with the most common things and try to work your way down. But I suppose the issue becomes, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that because you don't know anything about that. So if you want to make assumptions when you're doing diagnosis work, I suppose that's understandable. The problem, I suppose, is that when you kind of aren't able to shake off a path based, like you can't look at, now Now once you start making assumptions past where you have information, like where the information, instead of the information following you, you're following the assumptions about the individual, kind of what you were saying uh, in Betsy's case, uh, without able trying to get off of that um, as it goes. Mm-hmm. That seems to be where the issue lies. Yeah. So c- communication, one, as... You know, just the the very basics of communicating, getting information across, but mm-hmm. to to not make these assumptions so that people can um, be healthy and get 
get fixed, yeah, <laughs> get I mean, the help while they're there. Communication is hard in the most basic sense of people, com- you know, trying to converse ideas and thoughts just in the most base of situations as a human being. So it's understandable that when you throw the factors in of emergency situations, when you throw the factors of, uh, you know, barriers of entry for different cultures, way of life, literal bodies that they're in, you know, it, it seems almost impossible to get it done. And, and I think, you know, as they were saying, is that you got to give people, the healthcare professionals, as much opportunity as they can to hone these skills mm-hmm. and then, you know, give them an ability to work and to, to, to do that. But when you don't allow them to do that, then it, you know, and, and that becomes, a, I'm sure, a business decision where it's mm-hmm. like we don't have time for you to build up a rapport with this individual because we have nine people waiting to get in that bed. Yeah. So it, it all becomes economical at that point. What's what? How much is one person worth worth over another? Yeah. And so either you have to develop these skills more quickly, which is when a lot of these generalities come in, or or you don't. And I, and I think this goes back to something we talked about in the last episode, which is kind of just time and space and, and effort and staff. Yeah. You know. Well, you bring up business. That's something that we talk about in the next episode. So that was a good segue. Hey, <laughs> look at that. And you didn't even listen to it yet. No, I'm, a, I'm excited to, though. I think this has been a, uh, a, these last two conversations have been very, uh, a totally unique perspective for our show. And, and, I, and I really enjoy it. And I'm excited for the next one. Me too.